See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I was talking to my kids recently about 9-11, and I was just talking about how air travel was before 9-11. I know for those of you who are a little bit older, pre-2001, you remember that it used to be a pretty easy process to get to your flight, as well as, if you can recall the differences, the, there was security, but pretty simple, you know, just a regular metal detector and maybe someone who would go through the conveyor belt of a very simple x-ray and everyone could go to the gate. Also, the pilot doors weren't reinforced. It was a pretty simple process and not much security. And as they say, ever since 9-11, everything has changed. When you think about that, you think, why did it have to change so much? What happened that would cause something that seems so innocent, air travel, something so simple, just transportation, become this almost militant process? What happened was sin, the darkness of the human heart. And from that, everything becomes dangerous. That's sort of how it goes with most things of life, is that the things that we take for granted such as meeting for worship on Sundays, with a blink of an eye or perhaps one virus that comes into play, everything becomes dangerous. And perhaps we so forget that what is simple, nice, naive, can with suddenly a sudden twist become so deadly, so disruptive. As Christians, it's very easy to forget that the cross of Christ is a dangerous place. It's not just a Christian symbol. It's far more than that. And the, again, the problem is that the innocence of the cross, as we think of it as just a symbol, a symbol of going to church on Sundays, singing songs and praying to Jesus, asking Jesus to come into our hearts, and then you go on and live your life. But what we don't consider is that Christ makes demands of your life. And those demands, because of that cross, are dangerous demands. We all know Jesus and the end of his life. He died on a cross. And then he calls us to do so as well, to give up ourselves. And unless we really understand what is that cross talking about, why must we do this, and what are the benefits or the fruit of, fruitfulness of that, we'll never really understand what it means to be a Christian. So here's the thing is that the gospel is dangerous. It is dangerous for ourselves, but it's also dangerous for Satan, for sin, and for the world. And until we recognize how dangerous this gospel is, we'll always take it for granted. 
So I want to look at how is this gospel dangerous in two different ways. First, according to verses 11 and 12, it opposes the flesh. And then secondly, it's dangerous in that it destroys our boasting, according to verse 13. So let's look at verses 11 through 12 and how it opposes this flesh. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. If you can go back to Galatians in the beginning of this letter, perhaps you can recall the main central problem that Paul was facing in the churches of Galatia. These churches did believe that Jesus gave his life for them. They did believe that Christ and the cross was the means by which we gain salvation. But there were these teachers that were coming into this church saying, yes, let's believe that, but also let's believe that circumcision is also what God demands of you. So we see that in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And circumcision is the part of a whole, meaning the circumcision represents the whole of the law. And what does the law mean? The law means that there is a standard by which we try to abide by, morally speaking, ethically speaking, to gain favor with God. And that is essentially the crux of these Judaizers, these false teachers. They were saying, yes, believe in Jesus, but also be circumcised and obey the law. You need Jesus, but you also need this too. And just in case if we perhaps don't think that's so applicable to us because we don't abide by Jewish law per se, but there are many other pluses. Jesus plus, you might hear if you were to go to certain churches or maybe a certain campus ministry, they'll say, you need to be baptized in our church in order to be saved, but also believe in Jesus. And that's pretty commonplace in cult groups and different churches, or maybe marry only that type of person, someone of your own ethnic racial heritage. Yes, but believe in Jesus as well. Or succeed in school, but believe in Jesus. First become a lawyer and believe in Jesus. Maybe your parents are saying that. Or maybe it's believe in Jesus and missions. Believe in Jesus and vote for this presidential candidate or this governor or whether there should be a governor or not. Believe in Jesus or get the vaccine and get the vaccine, not or end. Believe in Jesus and do not get the vaccine. It's very tempting to see the gospel as gospel and something else. Notice also how Paul describes this group of people. He says in verse 12, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. This phrase, good showing in the flesh, it's actually a Greek word. Um, it's a phrase, a couple of words, that refers to a city official who wants to make a good showing by writing a financial report that hides a shortfall of revenues. And so to look good to his superiors, he would fudge the report so that when he hands it to them, it looks like they're doing well from a tax revenue-based perspective, but in reality, they're not. Someone's maybe skimming off the top. So it's basically putting on a show to look good for someone above you. 
And that's the phrase that Paul is using to describe this person, these people. That is to say that there are people who want to look spiritual, look Christian, look holy, and they can speak the language. They sound perhaps loving, theological, merciful. They sound one way in one context, but very different in another context. As Paul says in chapter 6, verse 3, when they are something, they are nothing. And so they want to look good for the church and for the world. It's not that they only want to look good and they don't care about whether they look good in the church or the world. They want both. You know, there are some who are believers of Christ who don't care about how they sound in the world. And then there are some who are not believers of Christ. They don't care about how they sound in the church at all. But we're talking about a very specific group of people who go to serve the Lord, who are going to church, who act one way on Sundays, um, gathering with other Christians, saying certain words that match the patterns of everybody else. But then when they go to work or then go to a party or whatever they do, they sound completely different. Someone who sounds the opposite of what they would sound like in the church. Perhaps there's a college student. You can imagine this. They're the leader at campus. They're a leader of their campus ministry. And they act holy and pray the loudest and raise their hands during praise. And they're the president of their fellowship. And then at the next party that's happening, they're getting drunk and smashed. And they're the, they're the ones who are inviting everyone. They're, their mouth is filthy. And, and they're also upholding those standards on different sides. They're the most legalistic. They're the most judgmental. Perhaps there's a, a Christian woman who's leading a Bible study, loves to talk about theology, but is very quick perhaps to deride fellow Christians, has a hard time perhaps gossiping or slandering somebody. Or there's a, a, a Christian man who's on the golf course and he has the foulest of mouths and his whole life is about his career success. But then on that Thursday night, he goes and leads a Bible study. And that heart is the Judaizer heart. It's the false teacher heart. It's exactly the heart that Paul's condemning here in verse 12. It's the person who says, I do believe in Jesus, but I also believe this, what's extra. This is who defines me, who I am. Look at what Paul says in the latter part of this verse. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. What Paul is saying is, why are these people acting this way? The reason is, that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Because when you try to live in both in the church and in the world and try to adapt exactly how both parts are doing, what happens is that there's a fearfulness of being known, especially by the world. And so perhaps if you were to read the Bible at work, actually try in some way to be consistent with your life, both in the church and in the world. And if there's that consistent, you actually try to live that life, sometimes you will be persecuted for it. Sometimes you will be mocked. Sometimes you might lose an opportunity for promotion at work. Sometimes you won't be as prosperous and successful. 
that actually could happen. If you're in academia, maybe you don't get tenure. If you are a person who is striving for some sort of worldly success, and if you're trying to live as a person who is consistent, it's hard, it's difficult. And what Paul is saying is that in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, they try to live in both parts of the world. They try to have this, I believe in Jesus, yes, but I also need to do these things. We'll talk a lot more in the next couple of weeks about this cross and how the demands of the cross really impact the way it should and must impact the way that we live. But know this, the cross, it's offensive to the flesh. The flesh, meaning our sinful nature, is opposed to the cross. The cross is offensive to the flesh because the cross requires us to give up everything. There's not a single part of our lives that the cross doesn't say, give this up. Whatever you treasure most, whatever you define yourself by, whatever you consider to be your success, it's your family, it's your wealth, it's your prosperity, it's your comfort, anything, anything at all, the cross calls you to give it up and to be willing to say, I am ready. With open hands do I come. I was, um, because I'm serving in part of Axis, one of the ways in which I connect with some of the guys is we're in a fantasy fo football league together. And I last night, I was thinking about this, and I thought, I think I should text a reminder to all the guys not to look at their phones right now as they're to be tempted by how their team is doing because the football games are going on right now and you're looking at your stats. It's such a temptation. That's a very small thing I'm saying, can you give that up? You know, for two hours, not look at your phone. Is that possible? And for some, that's a really big sacrifice. And I know you're thinking, come on, that's absurd. But for some, it's very big. Now, if we can't give that up or anything that we think is important to us, well, that's the cross. The cross is demanding it. And it is warring against the flesh, our sinful nature. And it's saying, there's nothing wrong with your career. There's nothing wrong with your family. There's nothing wrong with fantasy football. There's nothing wrong with your phone or social media or anything like that. But the challenge is that those things we delight in, we place our hope in, we value in, we find worthwhile so much that Christ truly is secondary to that. So in this sense, the cross demands that we give it up. We see this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you look at Luke 9, 23, and what Jesus says there is, there's no room for Jesus, I'll give everything up except this one thing. Don't ask me to give up my children. Don't, you can't ask for that. Look at Luke 9.23. It just doesn't allow for that one exception. There's no exception in that. Don't ask me to give up this company that I've built up from ground zero. And I've worked so hard. I've given everything. You can't ask me to give that up. Don't ask me to give up my house. No. He asked for everything. It's at the cross. And here's why. It's at the cross God gave everything to you. As we saw in Galatians 2.20, God loved you and gave himself up for you. You know, he didn't withhold a single thing 
the most important, he owns everything. He could have said, okay, I'll give up um, maybe California for you. I'll give up the Redwoods for you. I'll give up that star. No, he went far, far, infinitely more than that. He said, I will give up my son for you. God the son. So that you and I can be saved. See, if we really believe that, that's why the cross is the most humbling place to be because the God of the universe gave up his only son because he loved you. And so when he says, now follow me, do you see why there's no room for you to say, but you can't ask me to give up fantasy football. (laughs) You can't ask me to give up my baseball career. (laughs) That just is ludicrous. And that's why God sits there and he says, how can you even ask that? How can you say that? So right now, if you are doing well in your career, and some of you are burgeoning, you know, this is the burgeoning part of your career. So from mid-30s, mid-40s, right? And I think a lot of you are in that stage of life. You've, you've paid your dues a little bit. You're in that mid-level success. You're not old like me so that you're thinking, oh man, it's the twilight years are coming now. I got to prepare for the end. So most of you are thinking, I got that left for me, and so I'm going to work really hard, and I'm going to succeed. And so you're working hard, and then you also play hard. And there is this lack of a sense of dealing with, what are you going to stand before the Lord with one day? When you see him, I was sharing last night with my family. We were having family worship, and I was talking from, we were sharing from Nahum. I don't know if you ever read Nahum. Nahum chapter 1. And the verses all talk about God as a God of judgment, someone you should fear. And I was just sharing with my family and saying, you know what? We don't have enough of a fear of God. And I don't think that just means reverence. I mean, he's the God of the universe. We should actually be afraid of him. But the most fearful place to be is to see him at judgment day. And you do not have the covering of the blood of Christ. And Hebrews 12 says that our God is a consuming fire. And if you've ever touched a flame or been burnt with a small little flame, boy, does that hurt. Imagine being one of the worst ways to die is to be burnt alive. And imagine that it takes about, you could, it could take anywhere from five minutes to an hour to die when you're being burned alive. Imagine an eternity of burning like that, with that type of pain. And we want to face God like that by saying, well, God, but look, I built this company up and I've made all this money and I've succeeded in my career and I'm doing really well and I've taken care of my family. You surely want that, right? No, if you cannot say that the cross is the only thing you have by which you stand before him, you will not stand at all. You are frittering and wasting your life. My friend, you cannot be amassing wealth and prosperity and think the cross does not demand anything of that. The cross demands every part of you. And the ways in which we express that faith is through our generosity. If we're amassing wealth 
but we're not a blessing with our wealth, then we've decided, God, this is, this is off limits to you. If we're succeeding in our careers and we have no concern for Christ at all and his kingdom, if all we're doing is pouring out all of our energies and efforts in our success, in our wealth, in our prosperity, but we care nothing for the people around us who are losing their lives and their souls, then truly we are no different than the rich fool that God says to the person who's building his barns bigger and bigger and who's increasing his wealth and his career and his prosperity, all to take care of my children and my prosperity. What you're teaching your children is their greatest hope and desire is but wealth in this world. And that is fleeting. And that's what you're investing in. God says to that man, you are a fool. Tonight I will take your life. And what will you have left? You will have nothing, not just for yourself, but for your posterity. You'll have nothing. You do not want to be in that place. Paul tells us that if we are not being persecuted for the cross, meaning in some way there's a loss by following Jesus. You know, if you're experiencing loss because you're following Jesus, it actually means you probably are following the cross, the way of the cross. If you're being left out because everyone else is at, at work is staring at pornographic images and you happen to not be and say, I'm not going to do that, and perhaps you become isolated, it's a challenging thing. It is so difficult to be a Christian in a world where people have no desire for Christ at all. But there is a cost. That cost, though, is what shows you that you are a believer of Christ. If there's no cost ever, if it never has any cost to you, then you have to really ask, do I, am I really believing in the gospel or is it just a show? If you think to yourself, I will serve the Lord when I have time. If you have that heart, you'll never serve the Lord. Because that who amongst us has time? What I find is this, the people who serve the Lord the most usually are the busiest of people. The people who say, I'm sorry, I can't serve the Lord. I don't have time. They're not as busy as they think they are. They've just chosen in their heart to decide not to. I've never found a person who serves the Lord who has plenty of time. Just like people who actually are the most generous with their finances in the kingdom of Christ, it's, it's many times not the wealthiest of people. There's a reason why there's the widow who gave two pennies, two mites, and Jesus says, that woman. Now that woman understands giving, and the apostles didn't get it because they looked at the other guy who gave a lot of money, and her point, his point was, that woman who had nothing out of her absolute poverty gave her everything. And for Jesus, that two pennies far outweighed the millions that the wealthy person gave who gave out of their plenty. When we give out of our plenty, we're not really giving. It's always from a deficit because that deficit shows our heart. That's what God cares about the most. He doesn't care whether you serve him with whatever time you have. He cares if you say, Lord, I don't have time, but you matter more to me than even caring for my own children, my own family, and I will honor you with my life. If, 
If you have no money and you give what little you have, you give it to the needs of the world, to whomever is in need, and you're generous with your heart, and you give that, you know, God uses that tremendously. He doesn't need your money. He, need, he wants your heart. So this heart opposes, the gospel opposes the flesh. The flesh always says, I want more. I want more for myself, for my family, my life, to make me feel comfortable, make me look good. The gospel says, it's about Christ. The cross makes demands on you. Next, the, the, uh, the gospel destroys boasting. Look at verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. When you have standards that you yourself cannot uphold, you become a hypocrite. And as we've seen throughout Galatians, Paul sees false teachers as legalistic hypocrites, meaning they create law, but no person can abide by their own law perfectly. They will always fail. So this is the, the bane of all parents, is that we become so angry when someone doesn't obey our law, our children, our spouse. But we all know this. We can't even keep the law ourselves. We cannot keep our own standard ourselves. No matter how much we try, we'll fail too. And when we fail, you notice we don't say, oh, please forgive me, I failed. We just start making excuses. That's the heart of the legalist. They place laws on other people and they cannot keep the law themselves. That's Paul's point in verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. If they rebuke someone for not praying enough, well, they won't pray enough too. It's the core heart of someone who thinks too highly of himself. And a great example of this is Jesus' parable in Matthew 20 with the parable of the laborers. Many of you know this story. He talks about this owner of a vineyard who hires different workers throughout the day and promises a very fair wage, a very generous wage, actually. So he hires, he goes out, hires some day laborers, and he says, I'm going to pay you this wage. And so the day laborers, they're excited because they don't always get paid. They don't always have work. So they come and work at the beginning of the day. And they're working hard but they know they're gonna get paid that wage. And then he goes midday, hires some more laborers, but he doesn't pay them more, he pays them the same wage. And you know the story. And then he goes out and at the last hour, last minutes, last moments, he hires more and what does he do? He pays them the same wage. Now. If you've ever read that story, isn't it frustrating to you reading that story? I think some of us, probably all of us in some sense are really upset because those people who first started, they do go and complain to the owner and say, hey, wait a second. We worked the whole day and here's this guy coming in at the last second, you're paying him the same amount. Jerry Bridges tells this story to, and he sort of gives a, sort of a modern picture of this. He talks about a class of smart, hardworking kids, and then there's the goof-off kids. And the teacher gives them an exam. Uh, 
after the exam is taken, a couple of days later, he posts the grades on the door. And the, the whole class gets an A. Now, what do you think is the reaction of all those kids? Well, the goof-off kids are going, yeah, <laughs> awesome. I didn't even study and I got an A. But what if you're the hardworking kid? You're upset. You're saying, I work so hard. Why is that guy who did nothing? Why does he get an A? I, got this, I work so hard. I get the same grade. You know why? Because there's something in our hearts that always says, if I put out this much work and effort, I deserve this type of reward. I think that's sort of how we think in our world. It's not illogical at all. And there's a place for that. But here we're talking about something vastly different called salvation. And here's the challenge for us, is that we think, well, I'm that hardworking person. If I were to ask you, how many of you are the hardworking person? How many of you are the lazy person? How many of you do you feel like gets hired in the beginning of the day? And how many gets hired at the end of the day? And we tend to think of that chronologically. But may I say that, yes, there is a place to see it chronologically. Maybe someone gets saved in the beginning. Someone gets saved at the end, at the last second. But there's also this idea that, in a sense, we're all saved at the end. We're all goof-offs. We're all the ones who barely squeak by. When we weigh, if you were to just try, as Augustus Toplides, a hymn writer, tried to do, he tried to count how many sins there were. And I think I've mentioned this before. It was something like 6,242,333. It was some exact number. But if you were to try to count all your sins, and God knows all of them, and then multiply them so much more, how many of us can then say, yeah, we're the hardworking people? No. We would be just squeaking by being pulled in by Jesus at the last second. The reason we get so angry at God when trials come our way, when our prayers don't seem to be answered, you know why? It's because we say, God, I serve faithfully to you. I did this in my life. I gave this resource. I, when I, I went to church this many years, and why am I suffering so much? I deserve more because I worked hard. I was faithful. I'm entitled to this. The Bible calls this type of person, he describes it as boasting. Boasting is they believe, a person who believes that their work, effort, merit, something they do or are, makes them entitled or deserving of something. Some sort of prize, reward, acclamation, and that is our hearts. The King James calls it vainglory. We become, have this vanity in ourselves of our own glory. We want to be the center of attention. We want people to notice us when things go well in our lives. And that's, that's why Facebook makes so much money. You know what capitalizes on sin? It's really good at, and if you really want to make a lot of money, always, always, always capitalize on sin. It always works because every person's a sinner. And you can always use greed, envy, pride, jealousy. If you can somehow monetize all of that, which there are a lot of companies that do, all companies do that, you make a lot of money. It never fails, never. And what social media is so great at is it capitalizes on boasting. It monetizes boasting. 
It's all about a thumbs up, you know? And if you get one thumbs up and you can, someone else gets a hundred thumbs up, suddenly you start saying, what do I need to do to get 101 thumbs up? And we'll do anything we can. If we, on Instagram, if you get one heart, how many more, how many thousands of hearts can I do? What can I do to get more hearts, more thumbs ups? And then if someone has more, we start feeling jealous. We, what we wanna show, especially in places like social media, is that we wanna show we are beautiful, we're spiritual, we're nice, we're kind, we're sacrificial, we're hardworking, we're intelligent, we're diligent. And if that's not enough, we also want everyone to know our kids are also beautiful and spiritual and giving and nice and kind and sacrificial and hard, hardworking and diligent. And we can be in the most furious of conflicts with our spouse, with our kids. Our, our home could be literally a disruptive chaos. But one thing we want to project is that everything is good. So whether it's on Christmas cards that are on people's walls or on Facebook, we want everyone to know that we are well, we are good, we are happy. And that internal boasting of wanting to project a show. That's what Paul's talking about here when he talks about boasting. He says, you're putting on a show. We're a bunch of showmen, show women. We are, all of us. We want people to think of us differently, but God sees who we really are. And boasting wants to look special through the eyes of the world. Boasting, the boastful heart also reveals other fruits of sin. The boastful heart is often an angry heart because when someone else gets compliments and we don't, we become angry. If you offer to play the drums and you come up here and we have an audition, we say, all right, show us how you play. And you're just going without any type of rhythm or anything. We say, I'm sorry, but you know what? It's probably not your gifting. And you say, well, how dare you insult me like that? I'm leaving the church. I mean, there's, a, there's this desire that says, I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. If you're longing to be admired by others, by your achievements, and people don't acknowledge it enough, we grow angry and covetous. You could see how this boasting just floods out of our souls and it goes into this dark place. One commentator puts it this way, the more we do, the more we earn and the more God owes us. Let me repeat that. The more we do, the more we earn and the more God owes us. It's a direct correlation. In, with a sinful heart, the more things we do, we always think in the end, God owes us. And the way that we know that happens is when we're going through times of trial. Trials and suffering in your life really reveal, do you trust God or are you thinking, I've put in all of this, now God, you have to bring healing. And if God should not heal, then all of that stuff that I've been doing is for waste. That shows we never understood the cross. Not really. Jack Miller, um, Pastor Jack Miller, he says this, the religious person will boast in successes and feel overwhelmed by defeats. When you're just religious and you're not a person who actually trusts in Christ, it's always about successes and defeats and always feeling 
those two things swamp over your soul. The gospel destroys our boasting because we are saved, not because of what we do, but because of what he did. And the gospel causes us to admit that we're all goof-offs. We're all the laborers. We don't deserve anything. The gospel is dangerous. It is dangerous to the world, dangerous to your own sinful nature, to your self-centeredness. It's deadly to Satan, but it is freeing. At the cross, never forget he loved you. He gave himself for you, not for your misery, for your joy. So what are you glorying in? Are you glorying in your achievements, your prosperity, your promotion, your family's beauty and successes? That is so short-lived. All you need to do is just look at old pictures of yourself. I know I do. I have this running digital photo thing in my room. And as I do, I see all my old pictures and I don't have crow's feet. I have more hair. I don't have sunspots all over. It just, it seems like a different person. And imagine if like my mother, she still, when I went to New Jersey, I, she still has this one drawer of all my awards from kindergarten. I mean, you know, first honors with cutting in scissors, you know, type of thing. And, uh, or draw, coloring in the lines, first honors. And it would be like me taking that, putting it onto Facebook and saying, see, look how awesome I am. I, that's absurd. But that is no different than putting on right now. Oh, look how beautiful my family is. Look how successful. It's the same before the Lord comparatively to the cross. But oh, how we still love that. We still delight in it. Do you know that to be a Christian means you will face trouble in this world? That's what Jesus says in John 16, 33. But you also know that Jesus also said, take heart, I've overcome the world. Don't put on a show. Instead, be who God has truly made you to be, a son, a daughter. You can trust him there will be a day where you will see the Lord face to face. You do not want to come to him with your trinkets. There's things that you treasure right now, they are but trinkets, broken toys. But instead, what you have, what you can boast in is the cross of Christ. Isaac Watts in his wonderful hymn, When I Survey the Wonderful Cross, Wondrous Cross, he wrote, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. May you find that to be true. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for giving us your son. I don't think there's a person alive in this room who would give up our son, our daughter, for another, let alone an enemy. But you did not withhold even your own son And so what you ask in response is our hearts, that we would trust you, that we'd actually believe you, believe that you are there for our good, not our destruction, not our our misery, but for our joy. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to this table, that we would 
boast in the cross of Christ. Help us, O Lord, to see that our pursuits in this world are empty and fleeting. May we not try to live in the world and to be finding glory in it as well as in the church. It never works. Instead, may we trust in Christ and Christ alone. We thank you, Father, for your wondrous promise of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.